Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Happy Father's Day to you fathers out there. I'm going to share a quick story, if I can, about my dad who just passed away uh, last month. And uh, because it also is a testimony of my good father in heaven, my heavenly father. They're both in heaven now. But uh, when my mom passed away five years ago, we weren't able to get there in time. She sort of declined pretty quickly and always regretted that we didn't get in in time to see her before. I mean, we talked to her on the phone, but she passed pretty quickly. And uh, so the week of our meeting here that we had, the uh, crusade that we had here, uh, my wife and I were very committed to helping out. And that's when I was getting calls from my brother that um, dad was starting to decline. And we had uh, already booked a flight to go up. My brother and I were going to take him for uh, this doctor's appointment uh, the week after, actually a couple of days after the crusade meeting. And uh, that was still on target, but my brother was just informing me of what was going on. And he was staying with my dad that week, and so he had first-hand view of that. And so there was a real struggle going on inside of me, you know. And uh, we just determined that, okay, we're going to stick with what what God's work is first. That's uh, I. There was nothing. My dad and I got along great. There, we, there was nothing I had to settle with him. We had every time we had said uh, gone up to visit him, we always assumed that this could be our last goodbye. But um, we just determined if he passes, he passes. It'd be nice to be up there, but this was our primary concern uh, to to. Uh, do what we committed to do here. So um, those few days during that meeting, it just like it's like, okay, he's going down tubes really quickly here, and and we just resolved, okay, that pretty strong chance we might not be seeing him before he gets up there. But he kept on kicking. He was like the ever ready bunny. He just yeah. never <laughs> never quit. But the day we landed in uh, Rochester, New York was the day they brought him to the hospice house. And uh, he was, at this point, comatose, but still alive. And uh, so we got to get there, and, and we got there, and, and it was really pretty nice. The whole family was was there, and we were all a beautiful place. Uh, if you had to die, that was a good place to go. And uh, they always, the, the nurse told us, the hearing's the last thing to go. So even though he was comatose, she says it's quite likely he was hearing us. I thought, well, that's a miracle because he never heard us when he was. <laughs> yeah. Turn the bell tone up, Dad. But at any rate, uh, after dinner, everybody had gone home. It was just my wife and I there, and uh, and and the volunteers and hospice nurse, and uh, we were singing some songs by his bedside. He used to love me singing "Sweet Caroline," and uh, Michelle said. Uh, it's too bad you didn't have your guitar here. Well, the nurse said, we got a guitar here. And so she quick got it. Took me a while to tune up because it obviously hadn't been used in a while. We started singing Sweet Caroline, and my dad passed while we were yeah. singing that. And it was, uh, it was to me a blessing. The Lord honored us that we were actually the only ones there of the family to see him go. And my brother came in and he said, so you killed him with your music, huh? 
<laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so all that to say, the Lord honored us for honoring Him. And I'm eternally grateful for that. Hallelujah. If you have your Bibles, let's open up to Romans, the 12th chapter this morning. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2. We're also going to look at Ephesians, the fourth chapter in our text. Romans 12, starting at verse 1, Paul's speaking here. He says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And then let's look at Ephesians, the fourth chapter, starting with verse 17. Again, this is Paul talking. He said, This I say, therefore, and testify in the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk, in the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard him and have been taught by him as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust and be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask your Holy Spirit to open your eyes, our eyes today and cause your word to come alive in us and change our thinking to align with your will and your ways. Thank you for helping us and for transforming us into the image of your Son. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Jerry, if I could have just a little more volume, because if I'm not hearing myself, I'm trying to force it, and then I end up starting to cough. So if you could help me with that, I'd appreciate it. You'd almost have to live in a cave with your head in the sand to not realize we're living in some very strange times. In fact, sometimes it feels as if the world we live in has lost its mind. In fact, sometimes beliefs and practices that we most of us would have considered irrational a decade ago, are now celebrated by what can only be described as a morally delinquent culture. But this didn't happen overnight. Little by little, sin and deception pushed its way up to the forefront of mainstream society, wearing people down until the initial shock factor wore off. Think back to the first time you heard a strong cuss word on TV. You likely cringed on the inside and quickly reached for the volume control. But now it's simply background noise for most people. Paul warned believers in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. Now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. These people are hypocrites and liars and their consciences are dead. Bible teacher Rick Renner said, What we will see develop in society between now And the ultimate end of this last day's time frame is beyond our current ability to fathom. As society increasingly rejects the Bible as its measure of truth and morality, it will open itself to possibilities that were considered abnormal and deviant to Bible-minded society. 
The challenge for us as followers of Christ is to keep the lunacy of the world from infiltrating our lives. This includes our families and the church. I've heard some say, well, what we need is another great awakening to turn our nation back to God and to sanity. And I'm as hungry as the next believer for a great move of God. We need to see as many souls brought into the kingdom as possible in our lifetime. But of the revivals we've seen in our own nation's history, and almost every one of them began in the midst of great problems. Some have affected national change, and some have not. So is just getting people saved enough to change our world? I want you to consider this. A Pew Research study I read recently showed that over 60% of Democrats and those who who lean toward being Democrats consider themselves Christians, and over 80% of Republicans. And yet the ideological divide between Democrats who call themselves Christians and Republicans who call themselves Christians couldn't be more stark. So no, being saved alone is not going to keep us from being conformed to this world system. Once we're saved, we're going to have to do something with our mind. We're going to have to guard ourselves against deception, not only from the world, but also from so-called Christians. In Matthew 24, the disciples asked Jesus, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? One of the first signs Jesus mentions is deception. Let's look at Matthew 24, 4 through 5. Jesus said, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Are we seeing that today? You better believe it. More and more traditional denominational churches have departed from the foundational truths of the Bible, modifying them to meet the new cultural norms that exist in our modern society. They call themselves Christians. They say that Jesus is the Christ, but they present a watered-down version of the Bible that majors majors on inclusion rather than transformation. And they are deceiving many. These so-called Christians will tell you that Jesus accepted people just the way they were. And there's a kernel of truth in that. Jesus did accept people the way they were. But he didn't expect them to stay that way. He expected them to take up their cross and follow him. But today, so-called Christians believe that Jesus accepted people just the way they were, period. And if you don't, then you're not a good Christian. And they'll go further, calling you narrow-minded if you try to speak the truth of the word to them. It starts to feel like you're swimming against the current in a fast-moving stream that will suck you in if you're not careful. Several years ago, our family was visiting a popular swimming hole in northern Florida. The swimming hole was actually a shallow spring that ran into a river. And I had my son, who was just a little guy at the time, in my arms. And we were enjoying the water. I wasn't really paying attention to where we were in the spring. We were just having fun. But I got too close to the edge of the spring where the floor dropped off into the deeper river. I had no idea the strength of the undertow in the river until I lost my footing. And I suddenly felt myself being pulled into the river with my son in my arms. And I felt helpless to resist it. Fortunately, someone on the shore saw the panic on my face and asked if I needed help. And I shouted, yes. 
That man jumped into the spring, was able to reach out far enough to pull me back in. I still, my son, as young as he was, still remembers that. And living against today's cultural current can be just as daunting, can it? To succeed requires a diligent commitment to God's word. Let's look again at verse 2 of our text in Romans 12 and see what Paul said to another group of believers who were living in a pagan society. Romans 12:2, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That word conform means to fashion or shape one thing like another. The J.B. Phillips translation says, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Well, I worked for a medical manufacturing company, and I just retired from them uh, back in December. We had these machines in the company that would hold two blocks of steel, which was called a mold. And these, these uh, blocks of steel were machined on the inside to look exactly like a part that the medical company would sell. And someone would inject heated, liquefied plastic into the mold under high pressure. And after that plastic filled the mold, it cooled and solidified into a finished part often with some identifying numbers and maybe the company logo on it. You notice it took heat and it took pressure to make that plastic conform to the mold. Just like that injection mold machine, people in the world can get pretty heated when you oppose their message. And they're not shy about putting pressure on those who resist. So what's their goal? To get you to conform So you think and act just like them. And don't misunderstand me. I'm not encouraging you to be a contrarian who always disagrees with and annoys sinners because you believe they should think and act like a Christian. No, our role as believers is to walk in love and to stay faithful to the Word of God. Amen? In order to do that, Paul says we have to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. The word transform means the process of undergoing a complete change into the image of Christ, which through the power of the Holy Spirit will find outward expression in your character and in your conduct. You see, God's plan is not to improve you. His plan is to remove you so Christ can live through you. Amen. Amen? Paul says this transformation takes place by renewing our mind. That word renewing means to adjust your moral and spiritual thinking to align with the mind of Christ, the mind of God. In our second text in Ephesians 4.17, Paul mirrors the message of Romans 12 saying, You should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. That phrase futility of their mind speaks of aimlessness. A life that's empty, purposeless and fruitless full of activity, but with no progress. A life spent chasing after meaningless things and neglecting the realities of life. How many of us know people like that? In Ephesians 4.22, Paul continues, put off the old man. Remember, when you accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, when you were born again, your spirit man, the man on the inside, was made a new creature in Christ. But you still have the same unredeemed flesh, the same unredeemed mind, with all their old habits and appetites, 
that you've been living with for all those years before you got saved. In Romans 7.18, Paul says, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. In verse 24, he calls his flesh this body of death. Some Bible scholars think Paul was equating this image when he said this body of death. He was equating it to a, a practice that was performed by an ancient tribe that lived near Tarsus, which is the city where Paul was from. And according to, to tradition, this tribe would punish a condemned murderer by securely tying the corpse of the murder victim to the murderer. So he could never escape the results of what he had done. So my guess is they maybe strapped it to his back, and just secured it so that this, the murderer couldn't, couldn't get this corpse off of him. So over time, the spreading the decay from the corpse would uh, slowly infect the murderer and eventually become his execution. I'm guessing they had a low murder rate in that city. What do you think? <laughs> but as gruesome as that illustration is, it certainly drives home the need to throw off the corrupt old man that wants to cling to us. And put on the new, which is created in the likeness of God. Which brings us back to the theme of this message, renewing our mind. Since renewing our unredeemed mind is so critical to us being able to put off the old man and put on the new, then we need to understand how to do it. And the fundamental way to renew our minds is to be meditating on God's word and to obey it. What's it mean to meditate on the word of God? Well, one man of God likened it to making wine, which I thought was an interesting analogy. He said, when we read and study the word, we are gathering in the grapes. And then by, but it's by meditation that we press out the juice of those grapes. And as we continue to do that over time, that juice ferments and becomes like a sweet spiritual wine to us. Ephesians 5, 18 through 19 alludes to this when it says, Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. While overindulging in natural wine can cloud our mind and judgment, drinking the spiritual wine that comes through meditating on the Word of God renews our mind and gives us wisdom. One of the ways we meditate is by speaking the truth of God's word out loud. Psalm 35:28 says, And my tongue shall speak of thy righteousness and of thy praise all the day long. Psalm 63, 5-6, My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and my mouth shall praise thee with joyful lips, when I remember thee upon my bed and meditate on thee in the night watches. Another way we meditate is by muttering God's word. Joshua 1.8 in the NIV says, Keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night, so you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Everyone knows how to mutter. To mutter means to speak things quietly to yourself, regardless of whether people are present to hear you. You're moving your lips, but not necessarily projecting your voice with any great force. Now, my wife does this in the kitchen when she's baking. And there's been times I've walked out there to think, who are you talking to? 
And I see that she's muttering the recipe to herself. Well, my mama didn't raise no fool. I like to eat what she makes in the kitchen. So I'm okay if she wants to talk to herself while she's, while she's putting it together. The end product is usually always worth it. In the past, it could feel awkward to mutter in public if people were around. But nowadays, I don't know if you notice, people are having conversations on their phone all the time in public, yeah. Yeah. with or without their earbuds on. And I still have to look and think, are they nuts or what? But then you're like, oh, no, they're, they're on their phone. So it sort of gives us license now to feel free to just mutter God's word wherever we're at, no matter who's around. They're just going to think you're talking on the phone anyway. So as you study God's word, take one or two scriptures that you've read, especially those that promise you something or tell you what God has already done for you. And begin muttering these verses to yourself throughout the day. For instance, you may be facing some difficult situation in life. Maybe you don't think you have the strength to get through. So you begin muttering Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then you begin muttering Philippians 2.13. God's at work in me causing me to will and do his good pleasure. You know, I've done this in the workplace when I was struggling with a specific job. It was just fighting me. And uh, I'd start to mutter, I have the mind of Christ, and I know what I need to know about this. I have the Spirit of God inside of me, and he leads me into all truth, even the truth about this situation. And inevitably, some idea would come to your head, and you'd think, oh, I'm going to try this. And, and, and it would work, you know. It didn't always happen immediately, but you just kept muttering to yourself, God's helping me. God's helping me with this. The funny thing about that is your mind has to be quiet long enough to hear what you're saying. (laughs) And so when it hears the word coming out of your mouth, it says, huh, begins to take on the mind of Christ. Your attitude begins to change. You begin to think in line with God's thoughts of possibility and not your ideas of failure. Another way you squeeze the truth out of God's word through meditation is just to ponder it. Think about it. Allow it to roll over and over in your mind and ask yourself, how does this apply to me? This is how revelation knowledge comes, as the Holy Spirit makes his scripture come alive on the inside of you. If you begin to sense faith rising up and you begin to lay hold of that specific word and to begin acting on it. Amen? As you continue to do this over time, you're going to find your mind begins to change. People say, oh, you're just brainwashed. Yeah, that's the whole goal. (laughs) I want to have the mind of Christ operating. And you find yourself putting on the new man and you're learning how to live in peace and in victory in a world full of lunacy. Amen? This is a process. It doesn't happen overnight. But it's critical to your development as a believer that you do this regularly. When your mind is being renewed by meditating and acting on the word, knowing God's perfect will for you becomes much simpler. I didn't say easy, but it's simpler. Simpler to find out. Maybe today you find yourself at a place where the lines seem blurred between sticking with the scriptural truth that's foundational to a godly society or embracing the modified moral framework, framework being pushed by the media, and other social institutions. Maybe you're asking yourself, do we as Christians really need to be so strict? Maybe we should just embrace tolerance, be more open-minded, and meld into our culture rather than opposing it. Wouldn't people be more open to the gospel then? 
Well, let's try to answer those questions by looking at a case study from the Word. The life of Abraham's nephew, Lot. Abraham and Sarah, who were childless and were called Abram and Sarai at this time, assumed the role of parents over Lot after his father Abraham, brothers, Abraham's brother Haran, died. So Lot had a front row seat to all that God was doing in Abraham's life of faith. From seeing his uncle Abraham leave his homeland to find some unknown location that God had promised him, to building an altar to God when he reached the land of Canaan, to seeing how God prospered his uncle with so much livestock and silver and gold. I thought God wanted us poor. He forgot to tell Abraham that. And Isaac saw how much he himself had prospered with flocks and herds and tents. Through Abraham's example, Lot learned the importance of following the voice of God. And he knew that living a life of surrender and consecration was what God required. He embraced his uncle's faith as his own faith. But then in Genesis 13, 6 through 11, and this is uh, from the Holman Christian Standard Bible I'm reading, Lot came to a crossroad, crossroad movement where he had to make a choice. And starting with verse 6, it says, But the land was unable to support them, meaning Abraham and Lot, as long as they stayed together. <clears throat> For they had so many possessions, they could not stay together. And there was quarreling between the herds, herdsmen of Abraham's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. And then Abram said to Lot, Please, let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, since we are relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. So Lot looked out and saw the entire Jordan Valley as far as Zor, as well watered everywhere, like the Lord's garden and the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose the entire Jordan Valley for himself. Then Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. It's almost as if Lot completely forgot that his prosperity was the result of his uncle's faithfulness to God. And when the opportunity came, he took the best land for himself. What's more telling is what follows in verses 12 through 13. Excuse me. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities, plural, of the valley and set up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning greatly against the Lord. So after Lot leaves his uncle, he lives in various cities in the Jordan Valley. But all the while, he's inching his tent closer and closer to Sodom. Then one day he got so close to that wicked city he allowed his thoughts to be drawn to its activities until finally it was easy for him to move himself and his family right inside. The nephew, this nephew of righteous Abraham, chose to make his home right in the center of depravity, convincing himself that this was the best decision for him and his family. By the time the angels of God came to Sodom to destroy the city, Lot had so blended into the culture 
that he was sitting in the city gate, which means he held a position of authority in that city. Uh, Most people believe he was a judge. It would seem as if he closed his eyes to the perversity of Sodom and silenced his voice about their sinful lifestyle in order to get along in his adopted homeland. So what's certain, though, is he lost all spiritual influence over his family. When he tried to warn his sons-in-law about the impending doom of the city, he laughed at them. And when he tried to dissuade the perverted men of Sodom from assaulting the angels, they called him a foreigner who had no business acting as judge over them. Even when the morning dawned and the angels urged Lot to take his wife and daughters out of the city before it was destroyed, Lot lingered. He hesitated. Finally, the angels had to personally and forcibly escort Lot and his family out of the city. Now, here's the amazing thing. Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says in 2 Peter 2, 7-8, through 8, that God delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Three times in these verses, Peter refers to Lot as righteous. So clearly he was saved by grace through faith, like Abraham. Yet Lot Lot allowed himself to become spiritually calloused by the many violations he had permitted to invade his heart and mind by living inside of Sodom. He could have moved out of that city any time. He lived in various cities in Jordan Valley before that. But the comforts, he had a house now, wasn't living in a tent. And the position, he was sitting at the city gate, likely as a judge. They were apparently more compelling than walking out a separated life of peace with the Lord. And so he lived in mental torture daily from the muck and the mire of his surroundings. Rick Renner says of Lot that the activities of the city eventually began to wear him out, break him down, and exhaust his strength to resist. And at some point, after his resistance was lowered, Lot succumbed to the environment around him. So we've been talking this morning about not being conformed to the world, by keeping the Word of God forefront in our mind and on our lips. We said to do this, we do it by not only reading and studying the Word, but by meditating on it, through speaking it, muttering it, and by pondering it. In other words, giving attention to it. Amen? Amen. Just like Lot, we will all arrive at crucial crossroads when we'll have to make a decision that will determine the direction and the outcome of our lives. In that moment, the words and thoughts we've given our attention to in the weeks, months, and years before, those are going to be the ones that matter the most. There's never been a more important time than now for believers to read, study, and meditate on the Word of God. The world around us is dangerously adrift in a sea of deception and moral confusion. So let the Word fill your eyes, flood your mind, and touch your emotions and become your guide. That's how you maintain your victory 
And that's how you maintain your peace in a turbulent world. And that's how your life becomes transformed. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, today we submit ourselves to your word, which exposes, analyzes, and judges the thoughts and purposes of our heart. Help us to know what's from you and what's not from you. And as you fill us with the knowledge of your will, we will cast down every argument that is raised up against that knowledge and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Let your word and let your spirit work together to bring us into the fullness of Christ as we approach the end of this age. In the name of Jesus, and everybody said, Amen, Amen. amen. You're dismissed. Have a blessed Father's Day, you fathers out there.